It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni with Jeremy Kate. Political polarization in the United States right now seems to be at its high point, fueled by a 24-hour political news industrial complex. On today's show, we explore that relationship with Dr. Allison Dagnus, author and a professor of political science at Shippensburg University. Her new book is called Super Mad at Everything All the Time, Political Media and Our National Anger. Thanks for being with us, Allie. Hey, thank you for having me. So you're a John Mulvaney fan. I am a John Mulvaney fan so much. Yeah. And in fact, um, in these dark times of political polarization, you know, I, man cannot live on C-SPAN alone. And so I um, frequently go back to John Mulvaney and just listen to him in a loop. And, sure. Uh, he's amazing. He's really, really funny. And he doesn't do political material except for about four and a half minutes in his latest stand-up. And he said, you know, I don't pay attention to politics, even though he went to Georgetown. True story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, but uh, I can't help but notice that everyone today is super mad about everything all the time. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that the first time, I thought, God, that's a good line. And then I watched the stand-up again and again, and I thought, yeah, that'll be the title of the book. Because it sort of nails it, doesn't it? It's good. I want to get uh, right into it, into the book, uh, which I read and I loved, and Thank I recommend you. people read it. Um, it's a very, I would call it a deep dive. It is a deep dive. Into the situation as we're experiencing it real time. But you quote James Madison, mm-hmm. and I think this kind of, for me, brought it all back around, and that this isn't the first time we've been like this. True. And the founders kind of anticipated it. Uh, Madison writes on tribalism, so strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. Sounds like what's happening right now, including the frivolity of some of the things that energize us. Mm-hmm, so true. when you brought this quote in, what were you thinking? What was your purpose there? I was thinking that historians especially say, you know, we're, we're deeply divided right now, and we've been divided in the past in America. And then sociologists will say, you know, it's really normal for people to sort ourselves, uh, group ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's like identity theory, right? So, yeah. so all of these other people are saying, no, no, this, it, it's normal, it's normal. But it feels very abnormal for us. And, and possibly that's because we haven't gone through this before. Mm-hmm. But I would also argue that the circumstances and the context in which we live right now are very different than when Madison wrote that. Um, and even different than the 1960s when a um, sociologist named, named Tajfel was, was first kind of looking at this, this sorting, this group identity mm-hmm. thing. Um, and and the, the context is different because the media are different. And so it is absolutely true that We've we've been you know here in in South Central Pennsylvania we're in the the sort of the motherland of, of the Civil War and and so we we fought a civil war seven hundred thousand dead and that's so much worse than where we are right. today, but the difference and I'm certainly not saying that one is you know worse or better, but what's different today is that because we have the technology that we have we are just constantly connected to all of this polarization and. There's money to be made right. in keeping us so 
angry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it, sometimes I used to, um, in my classes at Shippensburg, I, I, my intro classes, I would say, okay, to discuss like committees, you know, why does Congress break into committees? Because it's really hard for people to agree on things and all this sort of stuff. And so I'd say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm actually a pretty decent baker. So I'll bake the class, chocolate chip cookies, or brownies, or I'll bring in something else. But you guys break into committees and then decide, and then all of you together have to, you know, have to figure out the differences. And then when you add an element of, of speed to it and say, okay, you only have 30 seconds, that's when like everyone's temperature starts raising, you know, sure. and people are screaming like, I have a peanut <laughs> allergy. Um, and so, you know, it, that's when it gets whatever. Um, and as I did it more recently, I realized if I put money on it too, like that's when people's lesser, you know, the, the evils... Um, and the lesser nature starts rearing its ugly head. Right. You know, if I said, okay, I'll pay everybody five bucks if you're going to win, then then that amps up things more. And and so with the combination mm-hmm. of having all of these different media outlets and the money that can be made from having more viewers and listeners and readers and, and all of that sort of good stuff, that has become the sort of perfect storm mm-hmm. for just how re- just furious people are and it's not by accident. No, it's, it's by design. It is very much by design. Yeah. So that financial incentive, mm-hmm. you could argue, is perhaps the main driver. Well, it is. It is. It is one of four things, uh, and that's. And so, yeah, the money is the money is a main driver. Um, but the money, you know, I'm I'm 50 this year, and so and I worked at C-SPAN, which is a, a cable network, and. The money wasn't there before, in, in the way that it is now, mm-hmm. before the internet. And then the money wasn't there before cable. And then the money wasn't there the way that it was, you know, before TV. And so so the technology can't really kind of be separated from the money because right. that's another important component to it. And then if you take the media out of it and you put in kind of the just how weaponized our politics has become because not only are there financial benefits for all of the consultants who do their work, but there are electoral benefits as well. Yes. You know, so Mitch McConnell is not making any money on doing what he's doing, but he's, you know, hashtag winning exclamation point. And, and that now, uh, you know, accounts for a huge part of it. Yeah. And so all of these things you know, kind of combine. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book is because the money is a really big part of it. And so are these other things. Too. Right, right. Early in the book, uh, you talk about the rise of the conservative pushback mm-hmm. on media. So let's talk about that. I mean, it started, I believe, with Lewis Powell Jr., and could you talk about the Powell Doctrine a little sure. bit? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, the conservative backlash to what I think of as kind of the three big institutions of knowledge and, and information. And those are colleges and universities and, and intellectuals and researchers. That's one. Um, the media are the other. Mm-hmm. And um, then government. Um, there's been a conservative pushback against these three different institutions going back way before even Lewis Powell right. did his thing in 1971. And so the, you know, the truth is that... Um, that there were seedlings. And so I just began at mid-century because sure. I'm sort of you a gotta sucker. Pick a point. I got to pick a point. And I really liked William F. Buckley. So I was, you know, what the hell? Oh, we're going to talk about Bill Buckley for I sure. Love William <laughs> F. Buckley. Oh, oh. Um, uh, if he were dead, he'd be rolling over in his grave. Uh, I know he's dead. Okay, so, um, you know, so I started with him because he was really sort of one of the 
the first to to be very thoughtful and say, mm-hmm. wait a minute, you know, there there are these liberal tendencies in the press and, and we have to come up with something that is different and went from there. But what Lewis Powell did in 1971 was so interesting. He was a lawyer in Richmond mm-hmm. and his next door neighbor happened to be the head of the Chamber of Commerce. And so Powell walked outside one day and bumped into Edward Sidenor and Sidenor said, you know, um, you know, I'm doing all stuff with the Chamber of Commerce, and, and Powell just sort of lit into him and said, look, you know, all these lefties are just running ramshot all over us. Like, we're, we're pro-enterprise, we're pro-business, where's our message? You know, mm-hmm. all these kids are marching on campuses, on TV, you know, everyone's protesting the war. Like, we need to get our pro-enterprise, pro-business message mm-hmm. out. And so Seidner said, well, can you write something up for me? And so he did. And um, he just went, it's this really beautiful little doc, you know, little document. Um, and it's not very long. And it just kind of goes through point by point what kind of pro-business, pro-enterprise ideas can be injected into college campuses in the forms of revising textbooks and guest lecturers and upping business schools, um, how the media really should be should be zhuzhed up, you know, in a conservative style. And, and that meant not only having conservative voices on news programs, but also having entertainment programs that leaned right and having a pro-business, mm-hmm. you know, kind of idea that patina over all of it. Um, and also how, you know, the Chamber of Commerce needed to have more lobbyists, right. you know, let's let's get into the government and, and start trying to persuade there. And I, I came upon the Powell Doctrine because I, I teach interest groups and I, I came upon it, you know, probably two decades ago and I read it and thought, holy cats, this guy was a genius. And a couple months after he wrote this and gave it to the Chamber of Commerce, Nixon tapped him to be a Supreme Court justice. He saw something there. Hey, there was, you know, he's, he had a future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Powell becomes a Supreme Court justice. And um, in the course of his confirmation hearings, a, a columnist named Jack Anderson said, uh, you know, wait, this guy seems very conservative, you know, which now you look back on that and think, huh, that's cute. Uh, and he published one page of the Powell doctrine and, or document and, and, um, and said like, look, look at what he thinks, you know, should be done. And so it ran in the Washington post and and then people kind of forgot about it, but it was really the blueprint for how conservative organizations began to operate. Mm -hmm. Um, and they've been extremely successful. You know, I mean, that's, this was around the time that the conservative think tanks were created because that's so, you know, let's get opposing thoughts out there. Like let's, let's let our voices be heard. And so as they are growing and as the left is, is kind of doing their thing and not growing, um, when there's that big shift back during the Reagan years to conservatism, then you had all of these organizations that were just like, we're here, we're ready. And then they started running the show. Now there's some central tenets to the, these ideas and they, part of them is an anti-intellectualism. Part of them is the complaint of media bias. Mm -hmm. Another one would be a complaint of liberalism on college campuses. Yes. So these ideas, while started back then, seem as prevalent to right-wing media now Mm -hmm. as they did then. The anti-intellectualism, that one is hard for me to understand. Where, you know, a lot of these right-wingers, there's a lot of very smart, highly educated conservatives. Yes. How do they come to this position of being anti-intellectual? Well, okay, there are a couple things. Um, You know, saying that Many conservatives are anti-intellectuals is, is like too broad a statement. Sure, it has to be course. sort of nuanced and fleshed out a little bit. Um, so if the idea is that college professors are liberally leaning, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to say biased, but leaning. 
they're right. You know, I mean, they all right. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Yeah. I mean, I've met a couple of them. Liberals go Um, into academia. And that's exactly it. Right. I mean, so there's a great writer, um, a college professor at, at, he's in New York. I want to say the new school and I'm not sure that that's right, but Jonathan, uh, hate H A I D T. And he's written several books about, um, kind of how our brains operate in these very multifaceted ways and how the things that we are, that we are drawn to and the things that we like, are consistent with other things. So, for example, and the way that I stumbled upon this was I wrote a book about political comedians, and I wanted to know why there are no conservatives who are in political comedy. That's a great question. It was so much, (laughs) by the way, much happier book to write. I mean, that, you know, I laughed a lot. I interviewed about 35 people. They were a delight. It was fantastic. This was sad. Um, so, uh, you know, I kept all of my stuff from the, the last book. And so in times of darkness, if Spiro Agnew's quotes didn't get me through the day, I would go back and just read direct quotes from Dan Quayle, which were just a gift. I mean, and they Unintended, just remain... Unintentional. Oh my gosh, they are so, they are so good. I, I strongly <laughs> urge you to find like a best of Dan Quayle. Um, it'll make you happy. So I was, I was asking all of these folks, you know, like your comedians, like, why did you go into comedy and all sorts of stuff? And, and one way to go about it is to ask people, you know, did you go to college? And of the 35-ish people that I interviewed, all of them did except one. Mm-hmm. And so I said, and then what was your major? Thinking, okay, you're going to be a poli-sci major, like you do political comedy, you know, you know, Lewis Black, all right? You know, like, oh God, you know, nope, they were all theater geeks. Hmm. And so what kind of person goes into theater? Not conservatives, no. right? And so that's, that's where I got to hate, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, um, is that the, and it was described to me by, um, now I'm just shamelessly name dropping, uh, Keegan-Michael Key, who said, you know, and he described it as like the divots in your brain that make you liberal also make you want to go into comedy, comedy right? right or theater um and and so if you are more conservative like you're going to want to go into the army right and and that just makes sense yeah you know and yeah. so and and then there's been a lot more sophisticated work that's been done about this but getting back to kind of the overarching question of anti-intellectualism um you know the the arguments that are that are very real um are that Colleges are, are left leaning. And remember, a lot of the stuff really was in the 1960s, where there were like there were riots on campuses, right. you know. And and so this was this was a time of very you know a lot of people are watching this, seeing college students, and just thinking you know what is going on you know there. Um, we've had this American ideal of like the pull yourself up by your bootstraps sure. kind of thing, um, and so it, it starts from there, and then it gets to the reality of of what colleges are, and then you get to today. Where on college campuses, not where I am, but at other schools, you know, you have liberal students who are shouting down conservative voices. Right. Um, and, and so it may be only a handful of schools, but when you get enough coverage of those shout viral. fests, yeah. then it gets viral, right? right? And then then you can organize around that. And that's where Turning Points USA comes from. And they say, okay, listen. We're not going to let that happen on our campus, even if it's not happening on our campus. So suddenly you have this presence. And then you have, um, you know, these, uh, I've, I have colleagues, not me, I have colleagues who, you know, are so excited if they end up on one of these, like, websites as, like, a, you know, a professor to watch out for and, oh, you know, things like, like that. Like a blacklist. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I am way too tender 
a being. Like, I'm way too sensitive. Like, if one person doesn't like me, if I'm, like, blacklisted, (laughs) like, you know, I'm going to go to the owner of the website and be like, no, please take me down. I'm really nice. Um, I might move some units. (laughs) I don't want to move units. I'm okay. Please just don't hate me. Uh, And so, you know, so that's that's where it starts and that's where it grows. And then, you know, for 50 years, if we've been hearing that the media are liberally biased and that college campuses are liberal um, and that, the, you know, the government's too big, you know, you say something enough and... It becomes reality. It is, yeah. You quoted uh, Richard Hofstadter from oh, sure. his Anti-intellectuals. book, Anti-intellectuals. Yeah, mm-hmm. you quoted in him life. in The Cultural Rejection of Specialists. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that because I find that interesting. You know, someone works all their life to become a specialist in a in whatever field, mm-hmm. and there's a conservative backlash against the idea of that kind of specialist. Mm-hmm. What is that? Well, a couple things going on. First of all, there's the natural tendency to say like you're not smarter than I am, and then and this is this is kind of like my big thing because as an American political scientist, and and by the way, I don't mean like I'm an American, you know love me or leave me kind of thing. But like as a political scientist who studies American politics um, and who studies media, mm-hmm. this is near and dear to my heart. What what has happened now with a lot of social media is that it gives everyone a voice and voices are great and everyone's allowed to express their opinions. And I believe opinions should be expressed. But I also believe that there is a hierarchy of opinion. Yes. And, that, on. and that is flattened. It is totally mm-hmm. flattened. And so students and um, not my colleagues really, um, but you know, other people will come to me and they'll say, oh, you wrote a book about political media. Like, I've watched TV. <laughs> Here's my opinion about this. And, you know, and, and even if we're just talking about elections or if we're just talking about you know, people, then now people have this much, I'm, I'm, for everyone listening, I have a tiny little bit um, in between two fingers, this much information, um, and they think, I got it. Like, I don't, I don't need your fancy, like, you mm-hmm. think you're so smart. Well, I just saw this program, and therefore, I know what's going on. Yeah, that, that goes to an idea I've always held that people want to have an opinion, but they don't want to do the homework to substantiate right. the opinion exactly. thoroughly. Yeah. And another idea I think that comes into play here is... You don't know what you really think until you've learned its opposite. That's true, too. And I think these are two things that uh, maybe they're too high a bar, but I think that they need to be more injected into the conversation. As you're saying, there are opinions that matter more than mine or yours. Right, right. And it's, and you know, it's, you're getting to so much stuff that I feel so strongly about because, um, so there's this phenomenon going on right now because, okay, so a couple different little academic theories. Um, so the idea of confirmation bias is the idea that sure. we seek out things that we already agree with, right? Mm-hmm. So so I, my husband calls that the drinking bird, like you're just yeah. nodding your head up and <laughs> down, good. like, yep, yep, go ahead, you yeah. know, keep talking, I, I agree with you. And when people do that, you know, it's, there's a great theory out there, selective partisan exposure. So we're going to seek out the, the partisan outlets that we like. And, you know, on the right, it's kind of the obvious. It's my right-wing media circle in the book, you know, with Fox News as the epicenter and a lot of other outlets around it. And then for the left, which is not, by the way, the New York Times and the Washington Post, those are centrist journalistic outlets. You know, their opinion pages may lean left, but that's not the that's not the meat the of what left. they do, right? Um, but on the left, you know, I mean, I do it just as much as anybody else. Like, I'll get a really good John Oliver clip, you know, that is so 
perfect. Uh, and it's so smart. And it just gets with humor and, and wit and, and brilliance, you know, right at exactly what I'm feeling. And I'll be like, ha you know, and I'll send it along. And I'm like, that shows them. And I have shown nobody anything, right? right? All I've done is stayed within my filter bubble, mm-hmm. which is the term for that. And um, that leads to something that's called epistemic closure. That's which, where I thought we were headed. That's where we are headed, which is um, that if you don't hear an opposing thought, then you're never, not only is your own argument never going to get better, but you're also going to be able to demonize someone who has that opposing thought much more easily. Mm-hmm. And that's a really big problem. To hear the opposing thought, though, it, you automatically think, I have to go to Fox News or something like that to, to hear that. And is that what we need to do if we're watching one like network as opposed to another? Uh, I mean, it seems like there should be a more... Uh, nuanced opposing thought. And you know what? And there, it's a really good question. Um, there is, yes. I, I, I look at sort of like Fox News and, and CNN and MSNBC as kind of like the sledgehammers. You know, you don't have to go there. Um, truly, you know, the most undervalued resource that we have is the news hour on PBS yeah, and fair. every night and they have, you know, and but it you know is, what? It, it's so boring. I know. That's but exactly what I was going to say. It's, it's so unsexy. It, it doesn't is. make you mad. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make move mad. the needle. No, it doesn't. But you know what it does? It addresses both sides of an yeah, argument. It yeah. does. And, and so, <clears throat> it, and so I think that you can find there are great resources out there, especially online. And in fact, uh, Jonah Goldberg late of, um, the national review is launching this new, this new outlet that's going to be journalism, right-leaning journalism, not opinion. Because one of the common, you know, uh, factors within my right-wing media circle that I talk about in the book is that most of these outlets, Fox News being the exception, don't do original journalism. They're not doing news gathering. They're doing opining. They're mm-hmm. commenting, right? right? And so Jonah Goldberg is like, yep. So he is going out to do some right-leaning journalism. That, I think, would be a good place to go. Uh, National Review is a good place to go. The Bulwark, who is, which is a great new site, is right-leaning, and that gives you that, that kind of, okay, I get it. That's mm-hmm. terrific. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that we should engage in the kind of like spicy partisan stuff as, a, as, a, as opposed to sort of, okay, this is what I believe about, you know, Abortion is the topic of today, literally. Um, so let me hear some other voices and see what the the thought process is. Not so that I'm going to change my own opinion, and not so that I'm going to change someone else's opinion. Just so that I can understand it better, and that way, somebody who disagrees with me won't be made into this boogeyman right. who I therefore can never. I'm a shun at parties, and you know, will never bake bread with ever again. To Jeremy's point, I would suggest that. You avoid the TV altogether. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if except you really for good scripted wanna, stuff, I'm a huge TV fan. When but it comes if you to really want to get stuff. down into an issue, you need to read. Mm-hmm. And I think that what the yes. TV has to Amen. do is it has to soundbite itself. Sure. So you're never really going to get an in-depth look at anything. That is totally true. And there's actually a term of art among bookers um, for the cable news shows, and actually like the broadcast news shows too. Um, you want to get somebody who brings the heat. Somebody who brings the heat is somebody who is really good at a fantastic quote that's just going to make people crazy. Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean it, that's exactly right. I mean he doesn't just <laughs> he doesn't just bring the heat. I mean he brings the heat and all the flamethrowers and like he, a he tanker in, of gas. He to invented like and perfected this art form. He really well he didn't invent it, but man did he make hay he with owns it. it. Yeah, <laughs> he really really does because he you know he's a media guy. 
Yeah. You know, at his root, going way back to the 80s. Like, I subscribed um, in college and after college, I subscribed to Spy Magazine. I remember that. Oh my gosh. I love Spy so hard. Um, it is the, it is just, it was so great. And um, it was about New York, like politics, New York money and stuff in the late 80s. So just imagine what that was. And if you're imagining like, really, really skinny women with huge shoulder pads and helmet hair and men who are wearing horrible suits and slick back hair and do a lot of blow. That's what it was. And so Spy just took down all of these sacred cows. For those who don't know, it's a satirical magazine. I think maybe you'd equate it to The Onion now. Except it wasn't. Except it was not as, you know, The Onion kind of takes reality, puts a spin on it, and puts out stuff that's not real yeah. as satire, right? And, and, and that's true. What Spy did was take real people and real circumstances and then kind of blow it up a whole bunch. Make fun of them. Yeah. And, and, and their number one target in the 80s was Donald Trump, yeah. you know, because... Well, he wanted to be. Because he's a media guy, right? Yeah. He's <laughs> always been a media guy. He's the guy who would call up the Daily Post or the New York Post, whatever, and this say... This is John Barron? That's exactly right. Like, <laughs> all he wanted was media coverage. And so even, he's still to this day, Graydon Carter was one of the founders, and Kurt Anderson, Kurt one of the, yeah, yeah. 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 So cool. Yeah. I know, so great. <laughs> um, they, they launched Spy Magazine, and to this day, because Graydon Carter came up with the term that Trump was the short-fingered vulgarian, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and to this day, Trump will send Graydon Carter a picture, like where his hands are really prominent and and write, not so small, huh? And Carter will stop the messenger from leaving and he'll take out a pen and write, nope, still small, and send it right back to him every single time. All right, let's let's circle back to kind of the origins of conservative media in your book, and let's talk about William F. Buckley. Oh, let's. Now, to my mind, William F. Buckley is the real deal, conservative. Mm Mm-hmm. But he's also an intellectual. Mm-hmm. And he, this program Firing Line, was mm-hmm. that kind of one of the first on television conservatives pushing back? Yes, it was. And it was done, it was on PBS, and it was done in such a way that it, you know, it, I don't know if you've ever seen clips. Oh, I have. From like the early ones. I mean, he is. My favorite is his argument with Gore Vidal. Oh, yeah. Did you, did you see there's a, um, there's an HBO special, a documentary. About that? Yep. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, it's called like the something argument, the world's longest argument or something like okay. that. Um, so, you know, he would bring on people in order to argue with them in a way that was informed mm-hmm. uh, and in a way that was very thoughtful. And he would listen to someone's argument and respond. And that person would listen and respond back. And it was very illustrative and very informative and very boring. And so that's and long why... long form, too. Very and long form. By the way, Firing Line is back, too. There's a new version of I it. I heard that. Yeah, I heard that. I it a couple of times. So I guess that is where you could go for your you know, conservative. That's another place. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like a lot of the, you know, the quote unquote, never Trumpers, Mm -hmm. you know, they are the conservative intellectuals. They're all on MSNBC too. Yeah. And you see (laughs) and that's where everything kind of goes sideways because. Well, not all of them. I don't think Bill (laughs) Crystal's on MSNBC yet. He's on. George Will will never appear on MSNBC. (laughs) Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I think Bill Crystal has been on MSNBC. Oh, really? Okay. I believe so. Let's I could be back. wrong about that, but I just saw him someplace. Um, you know, look, 
guy's got to make a buck. Uh, yeah. And so, you he know. He just the, lost his job. <laughs> and he just lost his job. Right, right. Um, because his magazine folded. So, so he's hustling. There's no two ways about it. And these days, you got to hustle. Because I interviewed a couple dozen journalists for this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of them were very young. I mean, this is the, the crop of journalists who are out there today. Um, they're very young. They're, they've got a lot of energy, as young people do. Uh, and let me tell you, they're not just reporting. They are out there. They are, you know, blogging, tweeting. Right. Uh, they are just all over the place. It takes a huge amount. So I, I don't blame, I don't blame the never Trumpers for you know just trying to kind of keep up. But they are, they are intellectuals, and they are saying, you guys, like they're they're sort of waving their hands, saying this really isn't about Trump. This is about the future of conservatism because a lot of what he stands for is not what we've been saying you know, what we should be standing for. Mm-hmm. The, the issue is that they're speaking about a different set of ideas than what the Trump supporters are speaking about. When you, do you introduce Buckley to your students, your conservative oh, yeah. students? What is their reaction to him? Oh, they love him. I mean, you know, what's not to love? <laughs> uh, and because his, you know, and, and, and there, there's some stuff not to love. Um, sure. you know, he does not, he did not, uh, have a terrific legacy on race for sure. Um, but you know, he, he was so thoughtful that, and, and we've just moved the goalposts so much that well, when that's kind of to my point is yeah. if you compare Trump as a conservative, if William F. Buckley met Donald Trump, Oh, he would say you're no, you're not a conservative. But that, and that's what the Never Trumpers are saying is that yeah. he's not conservative. I mean, he's running mm-hmm. up deficits and you know the trade stuff and all of this sort of crap. But and he sticks it to the libs though, and that's what matters. He does, and ready, he does, and just to, I I, I listen. I, I do love podcasts very very much, and in fact, ever since the election, um, I just haven't been able to listen to NPR because it's too like in my face newsy and NPR is not like angry by any means. I mean, that's what, you know, people listen to when, when anesthesia is not available, but I just can't, (laughs) I can't let, I just can't hear the kind of constant drumbeat of politics. So I listen to a lot of podcasts and one that I listen to every day is the daily from the New York times, Michael Barbaro hosting it. And he does a good job. And the, the New York times does a good job of interviewing different sides of an issue. And so recently they were talking about trade and, you know, we, we like to think, okay, what is, you know, what is this guy doing in terms of the trade wars and, and the people are going to, you know, the people who need the help the most are going to be hurt the most. And yes, and in addition to all of that, they, a lot of this country was really hurt by a lot of the conservative and liberal policies that went into, went into place concerning not only war and trade, but also the other things that, that we tend not to focus on. Right. And so a lot of those jobs are just gone. Yeah. You know, and and so in if you're feeling just really screwed uh, and you're looking at, at the Republicans who did that to you, they're absolutely no better. And if you get a guy who could also stick it to the libs, <laughs> that's just a twofer. Right. You know? Yeah. So going back, moving forward, if that makes sense, Ronald Reagan and the Fairness Doctrine. Ah, yeah. I feel like this was the watershed moment for conservative media. For, for radio, for, for radio, sure. yeah, 100%. yeah, where Rush Limbaugh could go on for three yeah. hours a day, and they didn't have to provide any opposing viewpoint. Do you think this was kind of the seminal moment 
for conservative media? It was an it was another seminal moment, right? It was it was that that kind of like another great step forward mm-hmm. for conservative media because the fairness doctrine said that if you air an opinion, you have to air the opposing opinion. And conservatives had a really big beef with this because they said, look, you know, if, if we want to air a conservative argument, like then we have to have a liberal argument on like the whole media are liberal anyway. Like this seems very unfair. And so in 1987, the FCC under Ronald Reagan revoked the fairness doctrine, which opened the door to talk radio. And that was when rush, I mean, I remember in the early 1990s, you know, all of these steakhouses around the country would have rush rooms where people would go for lunch and they would have rush on, you know, broadcasting, mm-hmm. and they would eat their steak and smoke their cigars and, and have their wine and their brandy at lunch, as one does. And, um, and that was just seen as sort of like, this is the great sort of watershed moment for mm-hmm. us, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was incredibly important because it showed how successful and profitable conservative media could be. Mm-hmm. And then you fast forward just a couple <laughs> years, I mean, not that long. And then, you know, Rupert Murdoch comes along and is like, I got an idea. Um, <laughs> If C-SPAN is airing 24 hours of public affairs, which is boring and nobody watches it and they don't have ads and so they don't have ratings because it's a public service, uh, and CNN comes along in 1980 and suddenly, you know, they're the only all-news game in town, but they realize you can't just have news on all the time because people will click off and that's where that kind of punditry comes from. Mm-hmm. It started on CNN and actually they took that firing line idea and turned it into crossfire. crossfire. Yeah, yeah, which just was, oh, <laughs> holy disaster. hell. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. And it started out as a good idea and then just quickly went off the we rails. We can thank John Stewart for ending that idiocy. <laughs> and he absolutely positively did, but that idiocy was going on for several years before he ever jumped sure. on and, yeah. and challenged Tucker Carlson to a duel. Um, so... You know, so it showed Rupert Murdoch, like, I can just tap into conservative audiences and I'm going to make a mint. And and he did. I mean, Fox News has been number one in the ratings for more than 208 straight months. Right. They are the mainstream media. They are. Let's talk 30% of the American Let's talk about this concept of Mm -hmm. mainstream media, because when people use that term, it's denigrating. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to represent every outlet but the biggest one. Right. So how does that work? I'm a little confused there. I mean, Fox News literally, as you're saying, dominates cable news. Right. And this is where, okay, so so it's easy if you're on the left to say, oh, you're claiming victimization. Oh, you know, you're just, you're whining and you've been, you know, you've been the biggest, the biggest elephant in the room, so to speak, you know, forever. And, and how dare you? Um and then you peel back the onion layers a little bit and you talk to a lot of conservatives who say, hey, you got the rest of the damn media. Like, who's the real powerhouse now? And so my right-wing media circle, which is fewer than two dozen outlets, yes, they got some power and they got some numbers on their side. And about 30% of the American public adheres to this circle. Mm-hmm. That's power to me. Mm-hmm. Because when I then take the rest of the mainstream media, which are hundreds and hundreds of outlets, um, it, you know, their viewership are significantly lower because there's so many of them. You know, and there it's are, like there's also no cohesive message. There is zero cohesive message. Whereas Fox message. News, there's yeah. a cohesive message. So let's right. talk about it. You, you introduced this concept of Fox News as kind of the hub mm-hmm. of conservative media. And let's talk about messaging. When Fox News puts out an idea or a message, how is that disseminated out to the Breitbarts and the Drudges? And 
Well, it doesn't necessarily start at Fox. Okay. Okay. And and actually, Fox back in the George W. Bush administration, they were you know they were the they were on all the TVs in the White House, and and so that's when they first really because remember I mean they only launched in '96. So four years later, George W. Bush rides into town and, you know, they're gleeful. They're like, this is fantastic. You know, our guy is here. And he's like, okay, great. Here's what we're going to do because this is also a conservative idea. We're going to stay on message. And in fact, I interviewed several folks from one of the biggest Republican ad agencies in D.C. And they do big people's ads. Mm -hmm. And their name, the name of the agency is On Message. Right? I mean, it's a little on the nose, but I like it. And these guys were great. So, you know... They stay on message. The Bush White House would send talking points to Fox and talk radio and, and everybody on their, you know, their, e- I guess, yeah, email blast and, you know, fax blast mm-hmm. and everything like that. They got it and they just stayed on point. Mm-hmm. Perfect. They're disciplined. They were. And then Obama comes into town. And I remember reading an article where I think at the time Paul Begala, you know, the old uh, Clinton mm-hmm. staffer, not that he's old, but, you know, from the olden days. Um he had a show on somewhere and they said, do, does the Obama White House send you talking points? He's like, yeah, I just throw it out. You know, because that's what liberals do. <laughs> that's a liberal, yeah. Right. It's like hurting cats. Like, oh, don't, yeah, don't tell me what to say. Like, I'm going to talk about this and stuff. Yeah. So that's when they figured out, like, okay, we can, just, we can just stay on message. So then what happens is Trump comes in and they don't have that kind of organization. They don't have any organization as far as I can tell. And so before the Trump Fox News feedback loop solidifies, which it has in the last year, I mean, solidified like, really tight. Then what you had before this were all the other outlets where, you know, Breitbart, because Steve Bannon was the head of Breitbart and then was a very high ranking member of the Trump administration. He would, you know, Breitbart would put out something and then that would gain some traction and Fox would say, okay, that's gaining traction. We're going to talk about it now. And then other news organizations would pick it up from Fox Mm -hmm. and then those, you know, Fox would then send it out to other places. And so it really is not so much that Fox is dominant and everybody else is subordinate, but more that they are cohesive and work together. And even more than that, they don't compete against one another in the kind of way that the New York Times and the Washington Post do. Right, trying to scoop each other. Right, yeah, and they now, don't do that. And now Rupert is is uh, Trump's bedtime phone call every night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he talks to Hannity. He yeah. also talks to Lou Dobbs, who's on Fox Business. Yeah. And what's really interesting is One American Network, which is um, a network that is online, uh, and I guess on some cable providers, but it's it's distinctly online, and, and operates a lot out of the White House, they are now trying to give Fox News a run for their money in terms of, because Trump, it's so clearly, he just really, really likes stuff that's positive for him. Yeah. So they've been providing that, and Trump has now been going to One American News Network. Oh, boy. And, and Fox is... Trouble Fox, in the family. Fox is unhappy. They are, you know, don't look sure. at that other woman. Look <laughs> at me. You're married to me. <laughs> so speaking of rage, uh, in, your, in your book, you mentioned uh, Newt Gingrich. And the oh, contract yeah. with America. I think this is another big moment Huge. where Newt Gingrich decided it's all out war. Oh, yeah. And so let's talk about that a little because he wanted to stoke everybody up mm-hmm. for, you know, something short of armed conflict, but effectively a form of armed conflict. So what was his impact? Oh, it was massive. I mean, so Newt, so Newt was a history professor first, got elected to Congress and was a backbencher in, in a Congress that was really dominated by kind of like the old power guard. And, right. and he just didn't like that. And so what he also saw were a lot of 
deals being made and compromises being made, he wasn't included. And so he created this group, the Conservative Opportunity Society, that had a lot of other young, they call them the Young Turks, like these, which, by the way, is very different than the Young Turks of Jenk right. Uger today. Right. Um, very different. Uh, but, you know, these guys were like Vin Weber and, and I think Joe Scarborough might have been one. But, you know, they were... Um, young and conservative and hungry. And what they realized they could do is if they stuck together and they weaponized their disagreement and their dissent, they could make some hay. And mm -hmm. they did. And so the way that he was able to first, I mean, take down Democratic leadership of the House for the first time in 40 years yeah. was unbelievable massive and and once that happened they were like well crap go ahead you know you do you we'll just follow you mm -hmm. you know entirely and i remember a saturday night live skit at the time where people would you know it was his first day as speaker and so all these congressmen were coming up and like you know i think all roads should be one lane he's like done you know and they had sunny bono coming up like share should be banned he's like done um and so you know, so his power was was massive. So too was his ego, which is how he was brought yeah, down. Yeah, took him off a cliff. Yeah, sure did. Um, but that idea stuck, and so it was message adherence. He put out to all of his all the conservative opportunity society. Here are words that we just want you to use, and they're mean. Just use them against the Democrats. Just stick to this. You know, and and once you stick to that, and you repeat them over and over again. It's amazing how you just get these little worms in the back of your brain and they just keep coming out. And so, you know, now it's fun to sort of listen to other people's conversations, like at our local diner or something like that. And I'll hear things like, ooh, socialism. And I'm like, ah, okay, that's a boogie word now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and if you just keep repeating things, you Death know. Tax. Well, another yeah, one of those, <laughs> another one of those is fake news. Yeah, yes. That's the new one. So this concept, do you know its kind of origin? I mean, it didn't start with Trump, I don't think. Mm -hmm. I think the Trump era has kind of popularized it. But talk about this concept of fake news, where people just will discount something that they disagree with, or actual fake news being pushed out into onto right. the internet. Well, there's a there's a bunch of different types of fake news, right? And and so. You know, something that's near and dear to my heart is satire, and I do love The Onion. Um, but I will have students who don't know that it's a satirical newspaper, and they'll send me these articles like, oh You're my kidding. God, did you? No. <laughs> did you see this? And they're in college. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's not nearly so bad, because they're still kids. Um, there was a congressman who took to the floor of the house because The Onion had published a, a story about how Planned Parenthood wanted to open an abortion plex <laughs> that was like a multi-level, wow. like it had video games and lounge things, and you could get abortions there. And it was from The Onion. I mean, it was totally wow. whatever. And he took to the floor. He was furious about it. Um, Yikes. So, so there's that, right? There's satire. Yeah. Um, but the real kind of fake news uh, are, are news stories that are placed on purpose, specifically to try and deceive a reader. And so the most sort of infamous one is the Pizzagate one, where there was this conspiracy theory going around that Comet Ping Pong and Pizza in D.C. Uh, was the home of a Hillary Clinton pedophile sex slave operation okay. in the, That sounds in the like an onion headline. It does. But a guy from North Carolina picks up a gun, drives there, and shoots the place up. Mm -hmm. um, so we think, because we're such bright people, like who would, who on earth would believe that? Um, but fake Somebody news, suffering from epistemic closure. So, but, so that's exactly right. And who's online and who, you know, they, they, they read QAnon, you know, they go to Reddit a lot and they see like, okay, like stuff is happening. Great new book out about conspiracy theories, by the way. Um, 
that show that actually we're not in some heyday of conspiracies. Oh, no. That, that these have gone on the whole time. They just get a little bit more press now because people are doing bananas things. But this has gone on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the kind of fake news that we are susceptible to are things that sound just close enough to the truth to be believable. And so it's just our own inherent biases that we think, yeah, it's probably true. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was a story going around after the inaugural that Trump had plagiarized Dr. Seuss. Um, and I thought, you know, my first thought was like, that sounds right. Uh, and then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me check that. Yeah, you gave into that impulse <laughs> I did, quickly. <laughs> just for a second. And then came back and was like, no, that's that's not really true. Um, but a, a colleague and friend of mine created, uh, he, you can go online and have a Trump tweet at you. You can create a meme that's like Trump tweeting at you. And so he did one for me and it said, you know, at Ali Dagnus is, is so low IQ, even little Marco can reach it, oh you know, God. with like an, an sad with an exclamation point. That's so funny. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, so I funny. printed out and I put it up on my board. And the number of people that come to my office and say, oh, did Trump really tweet at you? You know, okay, and you're depressing me about a generation of kids coming my up. My colleagues do, because it sounds so real. And I keep thinking, oh, my God, do you think I'm important enough for the president to actually tweet at me? Like, that is exciting. Yeah. And no, that you is did. all a meme. Well, Pete, yeah. you did see the Sasha Baron Cohen thing on Showtime. Oh, yeah, uh, that's Showtime. true. Yeah, that's with true, With the kinder, kinder yeah, gardeners he, with guns. and he somehow got Dick Cheney on there. And yeah. oh So my gosh. that concept of fake news, though, is that new to us? It is not new to us, but what is relatively new to us is the way that um, foreign nations, particularly Russia, are weaponizing it to sow dissent in our country. Mm-hmm. And so that really started 2016, maybe a little bit before it, Excuse me. And the problem is that, you know, we are so we're so primed to be angry and yeah. we're so primed to um, uh, to believe an idea in a very sort of nascent form or, you know, something that's a little amorphous um, that that when that kind of fake news was placed, particularly in social media, people just sort of scroll through it and just think, ha, ah, you know, and it just got them got them up, you know. And the other problem is that it just was very inexpensive on Facebook, especially uh, to run ads. So yeah. an interesting, ah, I just read this. Oh gosh. So apparently President Trump is spending the bulk of his 2020 campaign money on Facebook ads targeted to older Americans. Oh, it's his base. That's exactly right. And it just doesn't take a lot of money. No, it's cheap to advertise on Facebook. On Facebook, it's extremely cheap to target very specific. I mean, I read one analysis of 2016 that said there were a couple Russian ads that went to 18 people. Mm-hmm. And that's just, I mean... <laughs> cost like three dollars yeah it's cheap you know so wow that's crazy so that brings us to another part of your book uh something you talk about the duopoly oh yeah of google and facebook mm-hmm. so describe some of these ideas around the duopoly and its influence on uh our our, our news and uh our rage well okay so the duopoly the idea is that um the so the internet was the internet was born free and we could get all of our content for free when Al Gore invented it. And um, because of that, we're so used to having free content uh, and we're so used to going to, because we're creatures of habit and we're used to going to specific places to look for specific things. So um, Facebook and Google are the two monsters of the internet. Mm -hmm. I mean, sort of Amazon, yes, and Amazon is quickly moving into every single area. Well, and Bezos is having an impact by purchasing what was a failing newspaper, the Washington Post. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, And also, I'll say that Bezos is having a huge impact by smacking down 
David Packer um, <laughs> and AMI who were trying to blackmail him. Like, you know, I mean, that right. is the just... The story of the, uh, the, the cell pictures. Yeah. Right? So you know, that's I mean, kind of gone quiet, Yeah, though. what happened with that story? I, you know, I think that that all... Well, first of all, we have the tension span of a grape yeah. nut, so, you know... There's so we, too much coming at us. There really is. You know, it's really hard to keep track of absolutely everything. And remember, <laughs> Anthony Weiner just got out of jail two days ago, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. we've got more... That we've got, too. Yeah, stuff is coming, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, so, you know, the thing is... Um, the duopoly of, of Facebook and Google are so big um, because we spend so much time on both of those entities that they really control the vast amount of information and therefore the vast amount of advertising mm-hmm. that are done online. And so someone told me, and, and I think it's like 90% of all ads, maybe even like 91, 92% of all ads on the internet go to Facebook and Google. Mm-hmm. And then all of the other websites on the internet combined create the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is amazing. I mean, if you think well, about it. Well, it makes sense in a way because you have to go to this singular destination, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook. And so they can kind of control that. What are your thoughts on Facebook being broken up or its, dis- its, its huge impact, especially on the 2016 election? I don't think that's going away. No, no, it's not going away. And I think that um, Mark Zuckerberg uh, is in a real big bind, you know, because to hear his, you know, one of his his college roommate, um, who's now come out with a... You said break break it up. Yeah, break yeah. it up. I, I, so, so, okay, so how do you break it up? Like, is it a monopoly? It sure smells like a monopoly to me. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really know. But mm-hmm. um, so, how do you break it up? What do you break up from Facebook, and 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 how do you diminish this kind of of power that it has? Yeah. Um, because trust me, others are trying to. You know, so Instagram. My my children are on Instagram. They don't do Facebook because that's for old people. Um, and they're on Instagram. <laughs> but guess who owns Instagram? Facebook. Facebook. So you know. So that's that's diff- That's a really tough walnut to crack. Yeah. Um, but do they have a dominance? Yeah, absolutely. You know, but the inf- the um, important thing to remember is that uh, the organization that has more lobbyists in Washington than any other organization is Google. Yeah, I was going to say. You know, Facebook and they are fighting this tooth and nail. And so mm-hmm. the only, to me, the only real answer is government regulation. Um, and they are fighting That's that. just what a liberal would say. That is exactly <laughs> what a liberal would say. I'm at least true and authentic to Except, myself. And when we saw Zuckerberg testify, we saw the level of expertise that our government oh, officials had. Oh, that was have. embarrassing. Oh, that was horrible. Yeah, that was, that was horrible. Yeah. Why didn't they know these things? I don't know. But that goes to monetization, which I want to get to one more topic before we wrap up. And then I want to hear some of your solutions you put at the end of the book. The monetization aspect is huge. Mm-hmm. So if you're a writer for The Post or The New York Times, you want your article clicked on yeah. repeatedly. Mm-hmm. You want the comments section filled up mm-hmm. repeatedly. So in speaking to reporters, what is this pressure like for them? And you know, how is the media hand- handling this? Um, the pressure, the pressure is, is high. Uh, and so does that change what they write? Probably not. Because I think that most reporters are unwilling, you know, that a lot of reporters are, are sort of sanctimonious and they're like, you know, I'll never change the truth, you know, in order to be whatever. And I think that that's in the main very true. Um, but I do know that they really do keep an eye. I, 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 the best part of this entire project was touring newsrooms because mm-hmm. that's just my sweet spot. So, sure. you know, so in all of these newsrooms, the Washington Post, and the Baltimore Sun, and, you know, everybody else, they have these huge 
monitors that show every article and how many people are hitting at it, yeah. you know, at once. And so, um, in order to goose those numbers, the digital editors will shift position. So when you go on to the New York Times website, you know, every hour, there's going to be different stories on there for you to see. And, and goosing those numbers is important so that you click on different things and different articles get different eyeballs. Um, and that's very important to them. But what the effect of what that does is that it, it flattens, it, it has another form of flattening expertise, right? Because it back in the old days when there were newspapers, um, if something was on the front page, it was important. If something was above the fold, it was very important. And once it was on there, it was on there. It was, it was on there. That was your newspaper. It. That yeah. was it. And so, you know, it would you would walk by and it would be there and you'd look at the at the headline and that was what the headline was. And now there's a zillion different headlines that come at you kind of fast and furious throughout the day. Um, and so as a one of the reporters from the Washington Post who I interviewed, um, Paul Farhi said that as a reporter he kind of likes that because now his piece doesn't have to be on A1 in order for it to be on A1 at some point and have people read it. Um, And then, you know, tweeting out your article also gets it more traffic and gets it more Yeah, they do have to hit all the platforms, don't they? They got to hit absolutely, positively everything. And, you know, one of the reporters from Politico that I interviewed, uh, she couldn't have been nicer and was running for me to go do Meet the Press um, while she was talking to Glenn Thrush from the New York Times while she Mm -hmm. was also getting booked um, for the Slate Political Gab Fest or something. Like, she was just, she was all over the place. Yeah, they have to be. Because they have to be. Yeah, yeah they really do. And so that's where a lot of, uh, also the monetization goes, you know, because that it takes a lot of money to have that much tech to, right. to do all of that. Directly stuff. to your point, just last night I was on WashingtonPost.com and I was reading a George Will editorial about the Export-Import Bank. Mm-hmm. There were 10 comments you go over to the new Alabama abortion law, there were 7,000 comments. Sure. So people, and this is what I understand that Facebook figured out, that there's a dopamine reaction. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When Absolutely. your rage is engaged. Yeah. So talk about that a little. Well, you know, because on social, our there's no, there's no ideological bias on the part of social media to try and, you know, because conservatives now argue, oh, you know, they're trying to, stump conservative voices and stuff. And that's not true. It really is. It's all about money. So it's an algorithm. So whatever you click on, you're going to get more of because that's because it is that dopamine, right? And so if you are clicking on political material, they're going to give you more political material. If you click on conservative stuff, they're going to give you more of that stuff. You click on conspiracy stuff, you're going to get more conspiracy stuff. And so... That's one way that they're getting more money, and that's one way that they're that we are keeping ourselves in these filter bubbles. Um, But it really is done... um, it's not done in order to kind of move public opinion one way or another. They just want more money. Yeah. yeah. And it does make us, you know, it does make us really mad. Um, and so that's what they want. They want us to feel a lot. Because right. if we feel a lot, we'll keep going back again. Well, they also, the Facebook people also found out that those pathways can start to recur and you want them to recur. Right. You want that release of dopamine over and over. So you want to keep clicking on the article that will enrage you the most. Right. And and they they label them so that so that it is intriguing to us. You know, that's you know? clickbait. It's a whole other topic. Yeah, exactly. So for a final bit of this discussion, I want to interject one thing. You use the word shambolic in your book. And I was so happy to see that word. Thank you. I love that word. <laughs> All right. You know, uh, someone made me take out, I said that the world was going cattywampus. They made me take it out. <laughs> Why? And I was pissed because it's the best word. <laughs> it's a good yeah. word. So let's talk about it. In chapter six, you get into, you know, how we can resolve some of these issues and how we can kind of move forward. 
Wouldn't some of that start with putting the onus on the individual news consumer Mm -hmm. to become more savvy? Yes. To be less lazy about your reading. Back to Jeremy's point. Watch the news hour. Consume new, you know, consume, (laughs) yeah, yeah, consume news sources that you wouldn't normally consume. Yeah, I think, well, you know, okay, that you wouldn't normally consume. Yes, absolutely. Um, That's hard because we're creatures of habit and... um, you know, we have motivated reasoning, right? You know, we, we do have these confirmation biases that we go after. It's, I, I don't blame people for wanting to go to what's safe uh, and what's comfortable. It's just kind of what we do. Um, and, you know, the Washington Post is my homepage because I grew up there and that's what I'm used to. Right. Uh, and so the fact that they're good is a total secondary thing. It's just what I know. Um, so getting out of that comfort zone is really, really tough. I, I, all, I think that... It would be great if people did that. I know people aren't going to do that. So with the knowledge that people probably won't do that, and with the knowledge that these, um, particularly like the partisan outlets that are so harsh just all the time, um, maybe ease off of those, you know, and, and, and maybe try to find an opposing voice that doesn't make you a crazy person. Um, and leave your house. And leave. Your go for time. a walk. Yeah, go for a walk, and go to a place where everybody isn't like you, right? And and so there was a great line from Seth Meyers during the 2016 campaign where he said um, something about Bernie Sanders, and and uh, he said, you know, someone said, oh, I don't know anyone who's going to vote, you know, for Donald Trump, and he said, did you ask everyone in your drum circle? Uh, and I thought that that just so perfectly nailed it. Like, get out of your drum circle. Get out of your gun club. Uh, g- go talk to people with whom you might disagree yeah. and not only talk, but listen. Yeah. And if you, can, if you can just hear somebody else's perspective on things, again, not to change your own mind, just to see, okay, you and I may disagree on stuff, um, but that's okay because we also agree on other things. Mm-hmm. That is so incredibly important. And... For those of us, you know, in our area who tend to lean left more than lean right, like this, that's a daily, you know, we go to the grocery store and that's kind of have to sit next to somebody who listens to music that's different than yours one day and you got to listen to it. That's okay. Yeah. World's not going to come to an end. That's right. I I, mean, it might, the world actually might come to an end. I think one thing you said in there is probably the most powerful thing is, is walk away from media for a while. Yeah. Shut it down. Yeah. And remember, it is addictive. It is. It's designed to be. Yep. And so, you know, we're sitting here now and we're having this really great conversation. I bet at some point one of us were like, I wish I should really check email. (laughs) Because it's addictive. It's not because the conversation hasn't been great. Yeah. All right. Well, we're out of time, but thank you so much for coming in. The title of the book, again, is Super Mad at Everything All the Time. You can find it everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere. Thank you, Allie. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. This has been my true pleasure. All right. And we are the Progress Pod online at progresspod.org. Email us at progresspod at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter at the Progress Pod. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.